WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Tonight, we take a look at human behavior. We'll be exploring crowdsourcing for scientific research before taking an in-depth look at the state of mental health care in Michigan. This is Exposure. Voila! Pulling rabbit food out of Parker. Parker. Carrots catch the light right up the block from the farmer. He got that lettuce, lettuce, that cabbage, cabbage, that broccoli. Trying to catch a fire. Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89 FM. You are listening to Exposure. With the age of social media and the internet, crowdsourcing has become a popular vehicle to motivate a large group of people towards a specific cause or project. Now, if you're not familiar with crowdsourcing, basically it's using the internet's reach to collaborate with a large mass of people. But does this have value for more academic fields such as scientific discovery? MSU assistant professor Casey O'Donnell has been studying this idea. There are a couple of different kinds of crowdsourcing, and people probably think of two different things. One's crowdsourcing, and then the other is crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. So crowdfunding is when you go out and you ask people for money, so that'd be like Kickstarter. Crowdsourcing, on the other hand, again, it comes in different shapes and sizes. Uh, It can be like, hey, we're going to have a logo contest, so lots of people submit logos. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another option is you actually have some sort of tool or piece of software that enables it, right? So use this piece of software, and it's going to do... X and Y, and that's going to help us. Um, the The idea is to leverage the power of crowds, that people tend to be really good at things that computers are bad at. Mm-hmm. And so um, for a while, there was this big push to use big computers to solve big problems. And it turns out that that doesn't always work as well as just asking people to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so what kind of got you interested in this kind of topic? Is it just that idea of uh, the power of a group rather than the power of a machine? Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, I did some research uh, on open source software, which is kind of like crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. um, except that you're asking people to produce software. I, I, you know, I used to work on open source software, but really, what got me interested in this particular project was how people were talking about it. Um, when the project Foldit first had success, um, and it was related to HIV/AIDS research. The way that it was covered in the news really surprised me. And and the headline that I frequently saw was, Gamers Solve AIDS. Mm-hmm. And the question I asked myself was, wait, just because it's a game, suddenly it's easy? <laughs> and, and that's what got me interested in doing this project. It wasn't crowdsourcing in particular. It was how games were being framed mm-hmm. uh, in the debate. Yeah, and with the Foldit stuff, if our audience doesn't know, Foldit it was a game that was designed, it's like they built kind of a... They're building a protein, right? It's, if I don't understand the science of all, to be yeah, honest. But. So I actually have a collaborator who's at Temple University. His name's uh-huh. Hector Postigo. And uh, he's smarter about the science than I am. I'm smarter about the games. Uh, yeah, Foldit is a really interesting project. Um, and it's a game-like interface that prov- provides players with an intuitive way to fold proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, like as somebody who plays a lot of games... Foldit's great and it does awesome things, but it's not that much fun. Um, um, It's really cool how they've managed to create this great interface for protein folding. But the truth is you probably have to be motivated by something else to play it. Yeah. uh, Other than, hey, this is just really fun. It's, you know, it's not a shooter. It's a puzzle game, but it's a protein puzzle game. (laughs) Yeah. And um, a lot of the articles, I couldn't tell if they kind of were blowing it out of proportion, but they said they solved this big problem protein misunderstanding and AIDS in just 10 days that researchers have studied for a while. Is that, um, did they get lucky or is that kind of an example of how beneficial crowdsourcing is? So what's really funny about it is that uh, the Foldit team, the researchers actually put the protein out there to the community on a lark. They're like, ah, nobody's going to be able to solve this. And some of the best and brightest in that community got together over 10 days and it was one uh, team in particular, but actually several different teams collaborating, and they worked their tails off, mm-hmm. right? Night and day, uh, they communicated on the wiki. So it was actually a huge undertaking for the people that solved it. 
And as I said, what's so funny is nobody expected them to be able to, mm. um, even with this really cool tool. And so was that team a bunch of average Joes or were they well-educated, understood what they were doing? So that's the interesting thing is that most of them are very well-educated. They're not your, this isn't your average gamer. So when that headline says gamers solve AIDS, what they're actually saying is, hey, really smart people helped solve AIDS problems using this tool. Um, and, and that's what's been so interesting to me about this project is that it's not so much that games make it better or easier. It's creating tools that enable pe smart people to do smart things. Um, and Foldit really got lucky and they have a great community that they support. And Foldit has really done an impressive job listening to their community um, because it really complicated what it meant for science, uh, for science right? Now mm -hmm. they actually cite these teams in their publications. And when they go to patent things, right? Like they have to credit these people because they are smart, motivated, hardworking people doing these things. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like you're studying Folder. Are you studying any other games? Are there any other games out that they're doing this kind of research as well? Yeah, there, you know, there are a couple of different games and the two specifically that we received this National Science Foundation money to study are Foldit and another one called Eterna, which is RNA folding. And I know even less about RNA folding than I know about <laughs> protein folding. But uh, I do know a lot about the game because I've played a lot of Eterna. Um, so those are the two games that we're studying. There are a lot of what I would say citizen science software that's out there or citizen science crowd uh, sourcing software. But these two really have tried to be games in addition to being um, technological tools. Mm -hmm. There are a lot that are out there um, for uh, tagging uh, where garbage is in the ocean or uh, along um, lots of different water sources uh, for people to identify birds that they've seen. You know, so citizen science software is pretty prevalent. There's actually quite a bit of it. Um, I think the difference is really taking this idea of making games seriously and and fold it in Eterna are probably the two best. There's another one called uh, Zombies, I think is the name. Um, you know, but... It, there, there are others out there, but these are the two that we wanted to study in particular because they were really tackling these big science questions about protein folding and mm -hmm. RNA folding. And you mentioned that Foldit, it's not exactly the funnest game, so you kind of have to want to do that kind of, I don't know if it's the studying or you want to help contribute or what to be a part of it. Is Eterna more of on the fun side or is that the same thing of like, you got to be motivated to do this? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, Foldit, definitely you have to have some motivation. And most of the people involved are really interested in science or they'll tell you stories about, well, you know, uh, my mom or my grandma uh, died from cancer and I want to find a way to contribute back to the scientific community. So there are oftentimes those kinds of stories. Um, Eterna feels a little bit more like Bejeweled or uh, Candy Crush or something like that. It definitely feels a little more game-like. Um, I think the problem is, is they don't know as much about RNA folding as they know about protein <laughs> folding. And so it was, hey, let's make a thing that's kind of like a game that gets people interested and then we can maybe better understand how RNA folding works. Um, but most of the people involved care about science. Uh, a lot of them have either undergrad or higher degrees in science-related fields. Um, a lot of them also tend to be underemployed. Mm. Um, so maybe they got an undergrad degree, they haven't been able to find a job, they're working at the mall, and so they do Eterna or fold it in their free time for fun because mm -hmm. they're still interested in science. Mm. And so basically, it, the idea of it kind of sounds like it's taking these big, complex topics and breaking it down. So, you know, in an ideal wor world, the average Joe could help and um, participate in this. So the adver first advantage I really see to this crowdsourcing idea is that there's a lot of hands available on the project. Does that mean the, the head researchers or the scientists are allowed to kind of focus more on the results or the process? Is, is that an accurate? Uh, I'd say that's a good uh, a good description of at least... From, a from the scientist standpoint, how they'd like to see it, that uh, there are these big problems that people can contribute to. Um, I think increasingly what also happens is that communities form around it. And I think a lot of scientists don't realize that what they're also doing is building a community mm. and nurturing it and fostering it, and that it's going to grow and live well beyond whatever funding they get for it. And I think that surprises a lot of scientists that suddenly 
the funding has run out, but here they have this community or army of people interested and engaged, and you can't really just chuck them aside. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that changes things a a great deal for the scientists. They start off looking for labor, and instead they find people that love science. And are there any other major benefits that you guys have seen with this? That's a really good question. Um, I think benefits that we've seen are understanding and engagement in science, people caring about science in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. It's not like most people read a lot of the scientific journals that are out there. So in terms of public understanding of science, it's huge, right? Mm -hmm. People suddenly, oh, a protein. Okay, I see what's going on here. You know, they may not understand the science of it, but they actually know something about it that I I would say is different than what the scientists know about it. I think the players of Foldit and Eterna have a feel for proteins or RNA that's different than the scientists and is actually something that maybe the scientists don't really have a grasp on that, uh, you know, the players that are really good at fold it probably have an intuition uh, for protein folding that even the scientists don't have. Mm-hmm. Just kind of an outside perspective. And I, I mean, I remember when the whole fold it thing kind of broke open, I was kind of, in, I, I, I thought it was exciting more from a social aspect from like, wow, look at how cool and powerful the internet is. But I'm going to admit, I learned a lot about <laughs> proteins that I didn't know before about HIV. So I feel like it, it, you're very, very right in saying that it um, it really kind of educates a broad audience, at least kind of lets them know this is what's going on or lets them kind of loosely understand this, this topic because it's very complicated, but it gives you just like a little insight into it. And then so there are, you know, some advantages, but what kind of problems have you guys ran into with bringing in such a massive audience? Does it affect the type of information collected or is there a lot more design that has to go into creating these kind of things? That's a really good question. And I think that's probably one of the uh, biggest things that we've seen is uh, the design of the tool itself. Right? It has to both speak to the players but also speak to the science behind it and finding that balance between a thing that's fun and easy to use and a thing that provides useful, reliable data for the scientists. That's all there. Um, I think the other thing that a lot of, a lot of scientists interested in, in uh, crowdsourcing, the things they don't think about are long-term what it means for science, right? Because mm-hmm. it changes the relationship that these people have with science. And they're not just processors, they're people out there working on this that get involved and learn a lot and care a lot. And so, as I said previously, that idea that you're building a community, but you're also building a very, a tool and a community that understands the science differently. And to see that as a legitimate part of the scientific equation is a really important one that uh, your players know something that the scientists don't know. Um, Foldit's done a great job of acknowledging their players when they publish things, um, when they do these findings. They didn't initially. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was by accident. They had all this news coverage. And as I said, it was Gamer Solve AIDS. It took a full year before they named the actual team in any news report. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just bad reporting. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would never think of, you know, because a scientist is used to working with a piece of technology. But when it's working with that group and you're not seeing them, it's hard not to treat them like a piece of technology. So I, I do see that. And is there any other um, kind of issues that you guys have run into with this crowdsourcing idea? Um, I think one of the issues that uh, we've been thinking about is that the rise of crowd, uh, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding of scientific research really comes at the same time that you have widespread uh, defunding at the national level of science uh, research. And so, you know, used to where maybe you'd employ 10 lab techs and they'd make fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year. Now you're employing one lab tech or, you know, a couple of people working on the technology and not paying anybody for anything. And, you know, because you have to, because there's less funding and you still need to produce more results. But that's really complicated to think about. Like maybe those people that are really passionate would have been lab techs 10 years ago, but now they're working at the mall doing it for free. Yeah. Could you see us moving towards a future? This is an extreme example, but where there's Kickstarters for research for AIDS or research for cancer, is that the direction we could be heading? You know, uh, for for better or worse, um, if if science research funding continues to get cut, and increasingly you're going to see it. And I think there are uh, fledgling attempts at crowdfunded scientific research. Mm. Um, I think uh, there's at least even one example of a Kickstarter where a PhD student said, help fund the rest of my research going to this place and doing this thing. 
Wow. And so kind of just to bring everything together to sum, sum it all up, what what have you guys kind of found in the research? Is this a valuable method with the future or is it just kind of a trend that's going to uh, taper out? You know, our results are still preliminary. We're still doing a lot of uh, uh, our data gathering actually with the teams. We've been working uh, mostly uh, on the user side and looking at the technology and how it gets used in the infrastructure. But now we're going out and talking to the designers and the scientists. I think no matter what, it's definitely here to stay. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a great way to engage people in science. It's a great way to get scientific data. But I think the long-term consequences are, are not something that a lot of research teams have thought about, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you think about this long-term maintenance and what do you do with a community that cares about this thing once the funding runs up. Mm -hmm. And so where do you guys go from here? You're continuing your research. Are you starting to look into different areas of crowdsourcing or what's the what's the next step for you guys? Uh, the next step, I think, is for uh, us to, to finish up looking closely at Folded and Eterna. Um, and I'm not precisely sure uh, where I'll go from here. Um, I think the thing that I'm most interested in is this question about uh, the kinds of what do the players of Foldit know that the scientists don't know? Mm. Um, what does the tool bring to the table? Um, I really think that when you build these things and when you build any piece of technology and users get behind it and they do things, uh, that it creates new ways of looking at the world. Mm. I mean, I think uh, you could say the same of something like Twitter, that I know when I'm driving, I think about 140 character tweets that I could say that I could write about my experience at that moment. So that's a new form of looking at the world that I really hadn't had before. And I think you see the same thing with all of these tools, that they change how we look at the world around us. And that's just going to keep happening and keep going on. So what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. Well, we've been uh, in the studio with Casey O'Donnell, who is assistant professor of, in the Department of Media and Information, and he's studying crowdsourcing and science. So thank you so much for being with us, Casey. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure on You're listening to WDVM Impact 89 FM, and this is Exposure. In 15 minutes, we'll hear about an organization working to support community mental health services. But first, in order to give you a better idea about what it means to be a mental health care provider, we spoke with Dr. Scott Halestead about his journey as a neuropsychologist. I am a, a longtime Michigan native, did a, uh, a stint away uh, with the Air Force after doing my clinical psychology training. I did an internship there. Uh, came back uh, to practice neuropsychology in 2003 uh, and have been at Pine Rest since then, also uh, now directing our outpatient services here. Mm -hmm. And um, just to kind of dive in, one of the things that um, I've kind of seen as we've uh, been doing some of the interviews for the show is that it's hard to come up with a definition of mental health care because it's such a broad range of care. Um, so is there anything that you would like to say about what exactly mental health care provides for? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think one of the problems with mental health care, just in a long-standing way, is that it was ever sort of parceled out of health care in general because it's really uh, a kind of a false dichotomy to say you've got physical health care over here in one part of the market and then in some other kind of harder-to-find place they've got mental health care uh, tucked away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what it's become is uh, care for what we traditionally think of, uh, or think of as mental health disorders, so uh, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, people with a chronic, other chronic disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, substance use disorders fall under that category. Mm. And um, now just to take a step back a little bit, when you first decided you were entering the field of mental health care, what sparked your interest in, in learning to provide uh, mental health care services? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I became really fascinated when I was a student in college with, uh, with just the study of behavior uh, and what made people tick, uh, how relationships worked, what uh, kind of good mental health looked like. And then especially fascinated by just how the brain works, this uh, you know, 100 billion or so nerve cells that just 
uh, allowed us to do these magnificent things, even just doing something as simple as picking up a fork and eating a dinner. Uh, you can't program a computer uh, a robot to do that hardly. It's a complicated thing that we just do easily. And so just all those pieces about what it meant to, uh, to be a, a healthy, functioning, mentally healthy, functioning person, uh, and then the, you know, there's the brain function on top of that, I just thought was almost magical. So mm-hmm. that's really what drew me into it. Yeah, and I mean, for me, the the um, the reason I, f- I find a lot of interest in it is because uh, exactly what you said, and that also though kind of leads into the the stigma of um, the problem of uh, defining mental health here because the brain is so unknown, and a lot of times it's hard to see physical proof of I- improvement. At least from uh, you know, you can't say like, oh, we took a spleen out. You know, you can see that with mental health care, it's a lot harder to see. Um, but is that still what keeps you going today? Yeah, I, I really think it is. And I think, um, uh, you know, partly uh, what I love about the work that we do is that uh, you can take somebody who, for example, has maybe been depressed their whole life and on the outside looked normal, uh, walked, talked, functioned, did okay in school, uh, you know, maintained some quality of relationships, uh, but, but really struggled with depression, low self-esteem, uh, all of the things that go along with that emotional distress. And there really are great treatments for depression, mm-hmm. but people don't get them. Uh, and so when, when we can actually help somebody who has been struggling with depression or anxiety for years, uh, that's just really rewarding. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the problems with the stigma is that people think, uh, this is me. People with diabetes uh, very often uh, don't think... Um, uh, you know, I'm just a bad person because I have diabetes. But people with depression might think that kind of thing, or high blood pressure. Mm. Uh, so I, I, it does still keep me in. And it is nice to see people who have struggled with some of those conditions actually get well. Mm-hmm. And you're currently working at Pine Rest in Grand Rapids. How long have you been there? Uh, 11 years. Oh, cool. And then what sort of topics do you focus on within mental health at Pine Rest? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a long, that's a long <laughs> list. Um, we really cover uh, the whole continuum of mental health conditions. And so we do uh, educational programs for people who are healthy to try to keep them healthy. Uh, we do community presentations. Uh, at our clinics, we treat people who, uh, who, as I mentioned, might be struggling with depression or anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, we will get referrals from uh, uh, employers saying our employee isn't doing very well, can you help us out? We have a uh, critical incident team that if there's a, uh, a traumatic event uh, in some place uh, where we have a team of folks who can come in and provide support. Um, we do some things that uh, surprise people. We have a very uh, successful uh, ECT clinic, which when you tell people that, it reminds them of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it is a really uh, a lovely way of helping people with with otherwise untreatable depression get well, and the team and, that does that work loves it because they see people get better. And really quick, what's um, what's ECT again? Uh, it's electroconvulsive therapy. It's gotcha. a shock therapy. Mm-hmm. That's how some people will call it. Uh, we have uh, programs for uh, mothers and babies, uh, mothers with depression, uh, what we call perinatal mood disorder. Uh, uh, we have uh, substance use disorders. We treat people. Uh, uh, in the in a detox program, uh, we have uh, intensive outpatient programs. Mm-hmm. So it really, it sounds like you guys just cover just the whole mental health condition, which is really cool. And yeah. one thing we've been focusing yeah. on within this story is um, talking about the quality of mental health care in our communities. And I think Grand Rapids has a really interesting relationship with medical care. You know, they have the Medical Mile, which where there's the MSU Med School, a really yeah. large research facility, the hospital, Children's Hospital, and countless other medical services. So has this kind of medical hub that's been created in Grand Rapids contributed to the growth of mental health services in Grand Rapids? I think so. Um, you know, we typically like to partner with all of those folks. And so uh, we have in the past uh, had our psychiatrists uh, uh, do work within the hospital, the acute care hospitals. And so we have, uh, we have them, uh, we have at least had them in all of those hospitals. So you could be in the hospital. If you have these symptoms, they would call. We would come in and do an assessment. Uh, we do partner with uh, the primary care practices in the area, which are uh, many of which are affiliated with these large hospital systems. And so we actually have some of our uh, uh, physicians consult directly with the primary care teams 
Uh, and, and so we've partnered in a lot of different ways with the different uh, medical systems within the Grand Rapids region. Mm. And some of the other people we've spoken with have talked about um, the need of mental health care to be really community-based, really involved in their community. How important do you believe it is for, uh, for the care facilities to be ingrained in the community? Yeah, um, that's another really, that's a really good question. I think in general, uh, it is better uh, and more convenient to receive services where you live. Uh, when you think about, uh, you know, you've got uh, an ear infection, uh, you don't think of packing up the car and, and driving to the Mayo Clinic to get your ear infection treated. Uh, you drive down to your, your primary care office, which is somewhere in your community most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think for that, for that purpose, uh, having a community, uh, community-based service, people who... Uh, not just being close, but also knowing what the stressors of a particular community are. Uh, if a community has been hit by unemployment, you have, you have people who are living right in your community. They have a better sense of knowing what it is you might be going through, just as an example. So I do think that's important for, for basic uh, mental health care. I think um, there could be some services, like I, I mentioned our ECT program. You know, there may be uh, a half dozen of those in the state. And in some cases, that might not be available right in your community, and it may be important for you to, to drive to get those services. But for the basic services, I do think they really do belong in the community, working closely with uh, the rest of the, the, the health care system. Mm-hmm. And so um, one question I had, do, do you think that kind of limits the ability of creating a hub or a headquarters for mental he- health care like Grand Rapids has kind of done with the medical mile? But it, So it sounds like you're saying each community kind of has its own basic or needs its own basic care. And for the more the, for the bigger issues, then that's more of a hub or headquarters kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know, more complex specialty services. You don't find uh, uh, cardiac surgeons in every community in the state. Uh, they tend to be they tend to be lumped in in sort of large medical systems um, because there are fewer of them, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a specialty that needs a lot of support. That's probably harder to provide in a very small community. Mm-hmm. And then before we go, just to kind of look at the field itself a little bit more uh, broad. Have you you've had a you know a long career within mental health services? Have you seen any changes over your career that um, you think have has advanced the care that's given in mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things I'm most excited about now is a greater recognition of the importance of mental health services as as part of the broad healthcare continuum. Now there have been some really scary things that have happened that have sort of identified gaps in mental health services in certain communities, sort of high high visibility press. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, there's a lifetime risk of, of just about one in 20 of any adult uh, experiencing depression. That's just really common. Mm-hmm. And, and historically, um, it, it's, it's been something that's been stigmatized and ignored and insurance paid for it differently. It was harder to access those benefits. And if you had a substance abuse or substance use disorder, uh, you, you were really stigmatized. And with, with some of the changes in how people are paying for insurance, how insurance companies are, uh, we're seeing coverage uh, for mental health services that matches what people get from their primary care doctor. And so I'm really encouraged by that because it, it really normalizes it. Something that uh, uh, if you were to pick 10 people off the street, one of them would have a depression, for example. That's pretty normal, common stuff. And so I feel like the healthcare is shifting to recognize that fact. Mm. And um you just touched on a little bit, but then looking forward, do you see any additional changes coming to the mental health field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a little harder to predict. I think, um, you know, I think we will continue to get better at recognizing and treating mood disorders. Um, uh, there, there is a lot of research going on. Um, there are better behavioral uh, treatments out there all the time. There are there are new treatments. Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, just as an example, is uh, is a device that uh, pulses a magnetic pulse uh, to a part of the brain that we know to be not very active in people who are depressed, and that's a promising treatment. Um, uh, you know, combinations of talk therapy and medications. Uh, I, I think we're making improvements there. So I think we'll be getting. Uh, better at the work that we do, but we also do some pretty good work today. And I think if we could just identify people who are struggling and uh, encourage them to get care and and actually reach more people who need it, uh, I think that would be a great thing to happen in the future. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Scott Halstead, who's a clinical neuropsychologist at Pine Rest in Grand Rapids. Thanks again for being with us, Scott. You bet. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. This is Stephen Rich, and you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. If you look at any community in Michigan, you'll most likely find a community mental health service provider. Ellen Bolter works to provide resources to these various centers and help them work as a group at the Michigan Association of Community Mental Health Boards. We got a chance to speak with him about his work. Well, the Michigan Association of Community Mental Health Boards, we are a trade organization who represents the 46 community mental health agencies across the state of Michigan. So they represent all 83 counties in the state. They provide uh, mental health services, developmental and intellectual disability services, as well as substance use disorder services. Mm -hmm. Our association also represents about 75, almost 80 provider organizations who also provide the the mental health and the developmental and intellectual disability and the substance use disorder services. So we represent a vast number of of folks across the state. Like I said, we're a a trade organization, so we, uh, we, we go from the upper peninsula all the way down to the to the border. Mm. And yeah, when, uh, uh, like you said, you know, there's a ton of different resources available in Michigan for mental health. When I started researching the topic of mental health, I saw just a wide range, each uh, each organization with a unique goal, whether it's providing or advocating. Um, so I just want to get a better understanding of the focus of your organization. And um, looking on your website, you guys list a few of the goals of the organization. So I just want to break those down a little bit. Um, one of the first ones is improving the, the quality and accessibility of community-based mental health uh, services. So what steps are you guys taking to improve the availability availability of care while also maintaining quality? Absolutely. Well, so we, we represent all of the communal health agencies across the state. So uh, the, the services are provided locally. They're locally driven within their communities. There, um, you know, a number of counties have their own community health community mental health center. Some uh, community mental health centers represent more than one county uh, across the state. So we try to provide some type of assistance to our members that belong to our association with things like uh, we do various trainings, uh, educational seminars throughout the year. We do three conferences across the state every year to give them a a better understanding of, of some of the the latest and greatest things that are that are coming up in the field to provide uh, continuing education credits for their for their staff and for their employees for their board members and just try to to be there as as the go between between themselves and also the, the state of Michigan you know we we interact on their behalf uh, with with the state of Michigan with the Department of Community Health uh, one of my primary responsibilities. At uh, our at the board association would be I interact uh, directly with the legislature on their behalf. So if there's a new law coming out, uh, for, you know, proposed legislation. If there's already legislation that that's passed, you know, I work on their behalf uh, with with the legislature to um, you know try to fix, amend, um, support any legislation that that impacts the 
publicly funded community mental health system in Michigan. Mm. And another goal um, you guys talk about is um, promoting collaboration between community mental health service programs. So how important is it allowing this exchange of ideas between uh, different service centers? I mean, it, it is critical. Um, as I said, you know, we are locally driven system here in Michigan. So there's, so there's local control over each of the uh, community mental health centers across the state. But it's also critical that, that those individual centers interact with, with one another, interact with, I mentioned, we represent about 80 provider organizations across the state. So it's important that they interact with those provider organizations across the state. Um, you know, the, the health system in, in general in Michigan and also nationwide um, is really all about now tearing down those, those boundaries and those borders and collaborating, working together, Integrated care is a is a big buzzword now in the field where we're working both on the mental health side as well as the physical health side of things. So, um, I mean that that's one of the things that you know we try to provide some support to our members through, like I said, educational opportunities, training opportunities, where they can better better interact with their partners across the state. And uh, with a lot of your literature, I, I kept seeing a specific word pop up again and again. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but I just want to, um, you know, explore it a little bit more. And that word's community. How important is it for these uh, medical or mental health services to be community-based? So it, it is critical that the decisions that are made um, at that local level impact those those local communities. And, and that, you know, that's not a, a top-down driven system, but more of a a bottom-up driven system. We think that's, you know, the people in the, in the in the local communities know best the needs of their fellow citizens within their community more so than than what you know someone from from Lansing or, or elsewhere would would have an idea of of what needs they have in their local communities. Mm-hmm. And so, does that mean that there's um, specific demands or specific challenges that each individual community is facing that the whole system isn't te- isn't you know uh, facing as a whole? You know, it, it, it varies from community to community, but for the most part, they all have similar challenges, although, you know, they could be tackling them in, in a different manner. I mean, one of the things that we're continuing to struggle with is, is funding with, you know, the, the state budget. Um, you know, so they all have, you know, they all have a similar challenge regarding state funding, but, you know, the way it impacts them varies across the state. So, I mean, it's it, it really varies from you know because they are locally driven agencies. It, it you know really varies from community to community what the particular issues are in those communities uh, because the the needs and and the desires within the communities are so unique across the state. Mm. And um, you your website also mentions um, working and promoting community-based mental health services. So what does it mean to promote these mental health services? Is that informing community members of the resources or rather advocating for legislative support? I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit of both. It's, um, you know, informing, you know, folks of, of services that are available in their local communities. I mean, that's something that's not so much done from our office, but done, at the local level, at the local CMHs, you know, having them work with their local community partners, you know, their hospitals, the local DHS offices, you know, things of that nature. But, um, you know, I think, you know, more of our role is the interaction on our members' behalf with the legislature, with the uh, administration, the state government in Lansing, you know, working on on their behalf and, and promoting this community-based system of care that we have in Michigan. Our system is very unique um, compared to other um, systems across the, uh, across the state. We have a, a managed care approach in Michigan, but it's a publicly run, publicly operated managed care system, mm-hmm. where in, in most states, the, the managed care aspect is, is privately run. It's run by a you know, a corporation, um, some type of a, of a business. Ours in Michigan, you know, the model is it's run by the, the public system. Mm. And does that help you guys to be more community-focused and community-based? Yeah, I think that leads to, um, you know, much more uh, 
credibility within within the community um, you know allows us you know the community to have more more input as opposed to a you know one particular business kind of making decisions across the state so you know we certainly think having that it's critical that we remain a publicly run um, publicly operated uh, system here in Michigan. Mm. And then moving to more a, a broad assessment of the care provided today um, in Michigan and then just um, kind of nationwide as well, uh, what are some major challenges that you guys are, are facing that, that you're trying to compete with today? Well, I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge we have would be budget funding, um, you know, is our number one issue that we're facing. Now, you know, there, there's good news and, and there's bad news when we talk about budget here in Michigan and funding for mental health services. You know, it's true that I mean, there's probably more funding available for mental health services in Michigan now than ever before. You know, Michigan was one of the states that um, decided to do the uh, Medicaid expansion. Um, and with that came additional federal resources. But one of the ways that uh, Medicaid expansion was sold in Michigan to the legislature was if we adopt this, if we accept these federal resources, we're going to be able to save state resources, state general fund dollars. And the vast majority of those state general fund dollars that are going to be saved in Michigan would come out of the community mental health centers. And um, just to explain Healthy Michigan a little bit more, that's that's part of the uh, Medicaid expansion, correct? Yes, that is, that's Medicaid expansion in Michigan. That's their the Michigan-created Medicaid expansion program. You know, I think with any new program that gets rolled out, you know, there's going to be some some pitfalls, some kind of working out um, mm-hmm. of the kinks, if you will. And I think what we're seeing now, unfortunately, are some of these folks that have been receiving services previously are now going to start seeing their services reduced because of some of the, the calculations and budget assumptions that were made. And, you know, we're in the process of kind of working with our legislative friends, you know, going back and forth with, with Governor Snyder's administration, trying to kind of work through some of the numbers and, and see if we can come to some kind of a, um, you know, reasonable compromise of, of where, you know, where we think, you know, things should ultimately end up. Yeah, and we actually spoke with um, someone at Engage Michigan, and one of the things that she talked about that's a concern for um, mental health with uh, with Engage or um, with uh, the Healthy Michigan Plan is there's more of a gap being developed between people who, who are under Medicaid and then people who can't afford their own services before they have insurance. So do you think that is happening as well, is, a, is an increase of that gap of not uh, or making too much to be in Medicaid but not having enough to be able to provide those services on their own? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. There's, um, you know, like I said, you know, with, with any new program, I think it's going to take a little while to work out some of the bugs and some of the, the gaps and pitfalls and, and donut holes, if you will. Um, so I think you kind of see a whole host of, of folks that are kind of falling through the cracks and hopefully, you know, we, you know, I, I don't think there's a desire, certainly not a desire on our, our members part or our association's part, but I certainly don't also believe there's a desire through the state of Michigan and through the legislature to see folks kind of fall through the gaps. I think everyone's collective goal is to get this right, to figure out what's going on and to ultimately provide benefits to those individuals. But some of the folks that we see have been kind of falling through the gaps would be people that receive, they have some level of, of health care. So um, if someone is on the traditional Medicaid program, but they have a spend down, many times their local CMH pays their spend down for them. So they have, say they have a spend down of $500. They have to spend $500 before their Medicaid insurance kicks in. Well, many times that local CMH will, will provide that $500 in services for them, and then they can get enrolled into the traditional Medicaid insurance for that particular month. Mm-hmm. Those and- are folks that are falling through the gap. There's about $35 million worth of services statewide for that population. People who are on um, Medicare, 
services if they require some type of a behavioral health services. That's about $25 million worth of services across the state. So there's various places where people are kind of falling through the gaps who they were receiving mental health services. And now the way Healthy Michigan is kind of structured, you know, unless things get fixed, they probably won't be receiving behavioral health services moving forward. Mm -hmm. And um, now just to like look forward a little bit to the future of mental health uh, care services, do you foresee any changes or any developments um, in the industry as a whole? You know, I think you're going to see, you know, mental health services getting more and more included with traditional health care. So when we talk about health care, um, you know, tr- right now when people talk about health care, you know, they talk about basically from the neck down. <laughs> you know, they talk mm-hmm. about the traditional going to my local doctor, my, my physical health care. I think in the future you're going to see when people start talking about health care, it's going to be the whole body. It's going to include the neck up as well. It's going to include the, the brain. And I think that's... Um, something that's going to be absolutely critical when we talk about healthcare moving forward. It's going to be both physical healthcare and the, the behavioral healthcare on the other side because they go, they really go hand in hand. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a, as we continue to move in the future, you're going to see, you're going to see those getting closer and closer as opposed to really being siloed right now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. We've been speaking with Alan Bolter, who is an assistant director at the Michigan Association of Community Mental Health Boards, and you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. Thanks again, Alan. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned into Exposure on Impact 89 FM, and I am Stephen Rich. As I took a deeper look into the struggles of the mental health care field, reports started to pop up left and right about the increased strain placed upon providers. Now, with changing insurance processes and increased costs, nearly every aspect of health care is facing unknown challenges. But in Michigan, no care has been hit harder than mental health care as their budgets face the most substantial changes with some of this new legislation. I recruited Marissa Luna of Engage Michigan to help me understand and unpack some of these challenges. Um, so just to start and kind of get the, a better understanding of what those words mean, mental health care. So mental health care in the state of Michigan um, consists of programs for individuals who have uh, problems like uh, substance abuse disorders, mental illnesses, and developmental disabilities. Uh, and what the mental health care provides in Michigan is services such as therapy, medication administration, um, things like finding housing for chronically homeless people who a lot of times are mentally ill, services and support in schools for children with autism and other developmental disorders, and efforts to help those with mental illnesses and disabilities to find work, for example. And so it is kind of a broad topic, right? I mean, it covers a, a, just a range of many different things. So do you think it's important for our state government to be involved in that and to help kind of not section it off, but help cover every single piece of it? Absolutely. Um, I think that kind of what you were saying before, there's a bit of a stigma in the general population. People don't really understand mental health issues, but they do, even if you aren't personally affected by a mental health issue or a mental illness, for example, it still affects everyone in the long run. Because when people who have mental illnesses aren't able to get the proper care that they need, they oftentimes end up instead going to emergency rooms for treatments or end up in jails and prisons, which are all paid for through our tax dollars. So it does really impact us in the long run. And we can actually save a lot of money Instead, by providing services for people through uh, community health facilities, mental health facilities, to treat them for their illnesses before they end up in those situations. So it sounds like it's more of a preventative care then, right? Making sure that they don't get to those, those bigger problems? Yeah, that's, that would be uh, the best aspect of, in a perfect world, everyone would be able to be treated with preventative care before they got into a crisis situation where they ended up in jail or prison. 
Um, and during my research, um, I, I ran across a, just a range of different um, mental health care organizations in Michigan from the community mental health facilities that at their website, they listed resources in every single county of Michigan. And then there's a larger association of community mental health boards and other organizations like the Mid-State Health Network. But um, it appears that there seems to be a lot of different resources available, but all the research that I, I came across was pretty negative about the future of healthcare in Michigan. Uh, a lot of people felt that we were going to face a lot of problems in the future. So what's kind of the root of this fear? The root of that really goes down, goes back to the state budget. So in the state budget over the years, there has been uh, a overall decrease uh, in funding for community mental health services. So providers have had to ration available funds for emergency cases, which goes back to the, the fact that that takes away the ability to provide preventative care for people. Mm. Um, and, and that leaves many individuals without mental health care when they would benefit from services early on. Mm-hmm. And um, so with this current budget, for example, that was just approved, the 2015 budget, um, there were some successes. So the legislature did add funding uh, to begin implementing recommendations by the Mental Health and Wellness Commission to improve the quality of life for Michiganders affected by mental illness and developmental disabilities and substance abuse disorders. But they also um, did not include any additional state funding for mental health services for those who were not eligible for Medicaid or the Healthy Michigan Plan. So that basically means that there are going to be individuals that fall in there somewhere that could go without treatment that that do really need it. So that's yeah. that's why people have a, a bit of a, a grim outlook on the future because there is continuing disinvestment in these very crucial mental health services and mm-hmm. programs across the state. Yeah, because one word I kept running across was there's a gap between being too wealthy, I guess, for for uh, Medicaid, but not being able to afford insurance yourself. How do you address a problem like that? So what to address that problem in the past, um, the, the state put invested in community mental health services. So they would invest uh, funds into programs for people who, like you said, maybe are making too much money to qualify for mental illness services through Medicaid or the Healthy Michigan Plan. Um, or maybe they're, they don't have insurance, so those community mental health services would be available for them, paid for through the state. Mm. Or there are some people whose private insurance just simply doesn't cover the mental health services that they need. There are insurance plans. So insurance is, is becoming better and more comprehensive as people are starting to realize that we need to address you know, mental health issues as part of an overall comprehensive health plan, mm-hmm. being mentally stable is, you know, just as important as being physically healthy. Um, But there has been an increase in funding for Medicaid-related mental health services, but there's been a decrease in funding for non-Medicaid-related mental health services. Um, Like we we mentioned earlier, but the the Healthy Care Michigan Plan, I was a little confused about what exactly that was doing. So the Healthy Michigan Plan is an expansion of Medicaid for people in Michigan. So um, basically what it's doing is that by implementing the Healthy Michigan Plan, more low-income individuals are now going to be insured and have access to comprehensive physical health services as well as mental services. Mm-hmm. When I was reading about it, it seemed like a lot of mental health professionals were not happy with the plan. Did they get their budget cut by a big portion now and then in they're waiting to earn the money back from the Healthy Michigan Plan so they've just... It sounded like they got a little bit decimated by the implementation of this plan. Is that is that fair? Um, it's tough to say at this point. It's still controversial. There is still disagreement um, and and discussion happening right now about the amount of money that is needed for community health agencies to uh, continue operating at the level to maintain critical services for people. So do you think this program is just kind of hitting a couple bumps early in the road and it can ultimately be a successful program? I think it is definitely a success that the Healthy Michigan Plan and that Medicaid was expanded in Michigan and that it's going to help a lot more individuals to receive the health care that they need. And ideally, I can't say with certainty if it's just a bump or if, you know, community 
health services are going to lose funding for people who don't qualify for Healthy Michigan. Mm-hmm. At this point, it's it's not 100% sure either way whether or not that's going to happen, but hopefully those people won't lose out on the services that they need. Mm-hmm. So when I think uh, just wholly of healthcare, um, I kind of come down to the idea that we want to maintain our costs while providing the best possible care. So is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so, definitely. <laughs> so I then mean, so then going forward, what do you think we need to do to continue moving in the correct direction regarding mental health care? I think in the future and to continue moving forward and creating a better life for people who have developmental disabilities, mental illnesses, we really our elected leaders really need to make greater investments in mental health facilities and mental health care for people around the state. Uh, like I said, you know, before there's been a decline in funding for community mental health services over the years, and that isn't helping, you know, the people that are affected by mental illnesses or anyone in Michigan because when we disinvest in crucial mental health services, the people who are affected and who are afflicted with mental illness often end up in the emergency room or jail or prison. And for example, treating one mentally ill adult in an emergency situation uh, costs over $13,000, whereas treating them early on before their situation becomes severe in a crisis only costs $626. And treating... uh, a mentally ill individual, or I'm sorry, incarcerating a mentally ill individual or just any person in general costs taxpayers over $34,000 per year. In contrast, the cost of case management for mentally ill people in Michigan is only a little over $2,000 per person. Wow. So making those, those greater investments in mental health care and mental health services will really be able to help everyone and help our state in the long run. I was researching a little bit about mental health um, diagnosis in prison. Do you have any, have you done any research around that? I have done some research around the treatment of mental, mentally ill individuals in prison. They usually, what I found is that uh, mentally ill people don't get the treatment that they need when they're in prison. Mm. And then they're released back into society without receiving treatment, having a lot of times those people end up in solitary confinement, which is even worse, and being in prison overall ends up worsening their mental condition, and then it becomes sort of a revolving door where people kind of go into this cycle of not being able to receive treatment and therefore going in and out of prison. Mm -hmm. One article that really jumped out to me, Al Jazeera America um, reported that there's 10 times more mentally ill Americans in prisons and jails than in state psychiatric hospitals. So, I mean, that's a big deal that we have more people who are mentally ill in jail than in a psychiatric hospital where they're, they could get the, the resources they need. Absolutely. And, and Michigan's county jails hold nearly 20,000 prisoners and about one third of those people are mentally ill. And in America, o- over half of all inmates have mental health issues in prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I could, you know. Before Marissa left, she wanted to give us a little bit more insight into some of the other work Engage Michigan is tackling. Okay, so um, when we talk about you know investment in mental health, uh, mental health care and facilities for people in Michigan, that's not the only thing that we need to invest in. We we also have seen a huge disinvestment and uh, cuts to schools, to uh, higher education, to infrastructure. Our roads are crumbling, as everyone can see. Uh, And that's all because our legislature has failed to invest in these areas over the years. So um, uh, the project that we work on at Engage Michigan that focuses on budget issues like these and the need to really invest in these areas to better our state is called Priorities Michigan. And it's a, a 
civic engagement and education project aimed at changing the conversation around the state budget and promoting that needed investment in those public goods. And most people don't think about the budget every day and wonder how it affects them, but it really does. It really impacts people in huge ways. And we're hoping that we can get more people engaged and get them interested in learning about how the budget works and and seeing how it affects them well, very good to know. Well, we've uh, been talking with Marissa Luna, who is the new media specialist at Engage Michigan. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure on. And finally, before we go tonight, just to give you a little bit more insight about why I wanted to explore the mental health care field in Michigan. Brian Smith of the Chicago Magazine wrote a heartbreaking article about MasterChef's past winner, Josh Marks, battle with mental health. If you'd like to read this article, you can find a link on our website. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you've been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.